This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Each of tonight's historians, and they're both distinguished historians, uh, have written, has written, an enormous book. Um, Here we are, the other way around. This one is heavier. Uh, Each comes in its own parcel force truck, should you order them from Amazon. Uh, The proposition we're going to discuss is Andrew's claim that Napoleon should be called great. There is no question mark in his assessment. On the spine of this book, it's just Napoleon the Great by Andrew Roberts. Now, Andrew, as you know, is a very distinguished historian who has made the business of Napoleon and what Napoleon got up to one of his main interests in life. He is the keeper, in many ways, of the Napoleonic flame. His books include Napoleon and Bonaparte, and Napoleon and Wellington, sorry, an investigation into the relationship between the two generals, Waterloo and Napoleon's last gamble, and his latest, Napoleon the Great, is also going to be the subject of a TV series which starts on the BBC next year, isn't it? Yeah. Next year, yes. Why Andrew is going to make the case that Napoleon should be called Great. When I googled what did Napoleon do for France the other day, I learned that he took the country to war, had the country declare him emperor, nationalised anything he felt like nationalising and introduced a secret police. Now we have heard of him, of course. We've all heard of him. He used to be used to terrify children in this country. He certainly won battles. He was, everyone agrees, a brilliant general. He rebuilt cities. He invented a legal system. He's even responsible for the street numbering system, is he not, that still pertains in most of this country, with odd numbers on one side of the street and even numbers on the other. But what is it about this man, who even Andrew, in this very lengthy book, which I had the pleasure of finishing this morning just in time, admits... (laughs) was a pretty sanguinary fellow at times. 
What is it about him that makes him so great? So, Andrew, tell us why. Can I borrow the, uh, the bottom book there? The bottom? Yeah, we could learn something from it. Yeah, I know, there it's a wonderful book. <laughs> <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour to be invited to address you and to answer Jeremy's question. The central point about Napoleon is the way in which he saved France and to understand the dangers that uh, he overcame in the course of this I'd like to quote from an extremely good book, uh, Phantom Terror written by Adam Zamoyski Um, and what Adam writes on page 77 quite rightly is When he became first consul and effective dictator of France in 1799, Napoleon had been faced by indescribable chaos resulting from ten years of revolution and counter-revolution. Internecine political struggle, random political terror, class war and open civil war in some parts of the country. The authority of the state had been undermined by the rapid succession of governments, each of which overturned the legitimacy of its predecessor. The law had been turned into a tool by rival political factions and justice had been politicised. Napoleon may have been a product of the Enlightenment and what conservatives saw as its depraved values, but he was a pragmatist. If he did not believe in divine right, he certainly had no time for Jacobin ideology, Illuminati or dreamers of any kind. He believed in order and he knew how to impose it. So what did he do with this order? Well, the first thing, as, uh, as Jeremy pointed out, was the Code Napoleon. He ripped up the 42 often contradictory legal systems that had so held France back and instead had one single code, which was from then on been able to, uh, to basically make France into a modern state. And it's been adopted by 40 countries of the world in every inhabited continent. He also created the glories of Paris, when you go on a romantic weekend to, uh, to Paris, you will walk along the quays that were built by Napoleon the Great. You will cross one of the four bridges uh, built by Napoleon the Great. You will see the uh, Vendôme column in the Place Vendôme or the Arc de Triomphe de Carousel in the Louvre. It is partly because of him that it is such a, a glorious and beautiful city today. He built also the, the useful things like the reservoirs and the, uh, and the sewers. He was a true creator. He created the Banque de France, which is the, uh, still around and, of course, at the time was the reason that he was able to get inflation down from 10,000% a year to 6% a year. He was the man who ended the war in the Vendée, this incredibly vicious war that had claimed 40,000 lives, more than were guillotined in the terror, and he ended that, uh, that war. He's the man, Napoleon the Great, who is behind the system of prefects in departments. There were departments, of course, before, but he managed to centralise that system with the prefects, which, again, we have today. He set up the Conseil d'État, um, which meets every Wednesday today um, in, in uh, able to, to vet the laws of France. He managed also to organise the first proper public accounting system and he also reformed the tax code. He did the things that you need to do in order to make a country work. He set up, ladies and gentlemen, the Légion d'honneur, which is still quite rightly coveted by Frenchmen 
and he also signed the Concordat, which brought to an end the uh, horrific system of, uh, of discrimination against Christians in the French Revolution, which had led to the desecration of the altars and the deaths of hundreds of nuns and priests. What he did was to save the best bits of the revolution, uh, equality before the law, religious toleration, uh, the abolition of feudalism, and he got rid of the, he just swept away the worst parts, the, um, the, the 10-day calendar, the cult of the super supreme being the, um, and the terror, the, uh, the mass guillotinings. And in a sense, one can understand why uh, he felt that it was necessary to do all of this and why also the British and indeed the old legitimists, uh, the ancien regime, old reactionary powers, desperately wanted to get rid of him. But the fact is, 200 years later, we can now appreciate that, that he was a great man, not somebody that needed to be um, used for, uh, for, for propaganda. He also was a man with a great sense of humour, which you don't get in, in monsters. He was... Uh, when at the opera, an escaped lunatic from a lunatic asylum came up and told him that uh, he was in love with the Empress. Uh, Napoleon replied, you seem to have chosen a curious person for your confidant. Uh, and when the Archbishop de Rowan um, wrote him a letter on the eve of the coronation saying that he would willingly give his life for Napoleon, uh, Napoleon noted on the, uh, on the letter, pay 12,000 francs to the Archbishop out of the theatrical fund. <laughs> he wasn't a warmonger. There were seven wars that were, um, seven wars of the coalition that were uh, declared against him, and he did attack uh, both um, uh, Spain and Portugal in 1807 and 1808, and of course Russia in 1812. Two wars that he started against the seven that were declared against revolutionary and Napoleonic France. If you're looking for an inveterate warmonger, you have to go back to the British, who were funding all of those seven coalitions to a huge, uh, to a huge degree. And rightly so. He wanted to invade us. We, you know, I'm, I'm delighted that the British won the Battle of Waterloo uh, as an Englishman. It set up the British Empire uh, very nicely after 1815. But it doesn't mean that we still have to be in thrall to the old propaganda of the... Um, of the cartoonists, the caricaturists like Thomas Rowlandson and James Gilray and George Cruikshank that make out this, uh, this man to be a monster. What's more, he didn't have a Napoleon complex. This idea that there was a hubristic concept where he had to go around invading uh, countries is completely absurd. The way in which we try to fit his career into hubris versus nemesis, this old uh, ancient Greek drama, dramatic um, conceit, just simply doesn't work. The reason he invaded Russia in 1812 was because he had beaten the Russians twice before. He'd fought in blizzards before. He had the largest army in the history of the world. It was the same size as the whole population of Paris twice the size of the Russians. He had no intention of going to Moscow. He wanted to fight within 20 days along the borders of Russia. Uh, he had no idea that uh, Typhus was going to kill 140,000 of his men. He had no idea that the Russians were going to fight such a scorched earth policy that they would allow, that they would actually burn down Moscow, or at least three quarters of it. So, uh, and he tried to stop several times on the way to Moscow. As I say, he had no intention of going there when he started that war. And he did know about the winter. 
um, which is why he allowed himself three weeks to get back to Smolensk. He made a terrible mistake after the Battle of Malyaroslavets, um, but the idea that he had no concept of the Russian winter is absurd. He'd read Charles XII, uh, the book by Voltaire, and knew perfectly well that it did. So it's not a, he's not a matter of hubris. He was defeated. But plenty of people have been defeated in history and are still great. Peter the Great lost the Azov campaign. Um, Frederick the Great lost the Battle of Kolin. Catherine the Great lost the war against Sweden. Uh, Alfred the Great lost so many battles he spent most of his time in the, uh, in the marshes of Athelney. But it doesn't stop them from being great. And neither should it stop Napoleon. He was a great meritocrat. Ten of his uh, marshals came from the working classes, a fact totally unknown in the history of France up until then. They were the sons of coopers and tanners and bailiffs and innkeepers and millers. Uh, one of them actually, um, actually claimed to have had a royal... He claimed that his father had had a royal appointment, but the royal appointment was, in fact, uh, the royal mole catcher. Uh, so, in a sense, you could actually add him as well and make, uh, make 11 of the marshals. Winston Churchill said that Napoleon was the greatest man of action since Julius Caesar. And I believe he's also, his life is a standing rebuke to people who don't believe in the uh, great man theory of history and who think that history is all created, like the Marxists do, by vast impersonal forces. Standing against that, ladies and gentlemen, is the career and life of Napoleon. And um, one of the midshipmen on HMS Bellerophon, which uh, that, uh, Napoleon surrendered to and, uh, and was taken back to, uh, to Plymouth on, in, said, he showed us what one little human creature like ourselves can accomplish in a span so short. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is so true and one of the major reasons why tonight you should vote yes. Thank you very much indeed. Well, now, to make the case that there is no argument for calling Napoleon great, we have another distinguished historian, Adam Zamoyski. His books include the best-selling epic about Napoleon's biggest blunder, although apparently, according to Andrew just now, he couldn't really help himself. Uh, 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow and its sequel, Rites of Passage. He's also written The Fall of Napoleon and the Congress of Vienna. His latest book is Phantom Terror, The Threat of Revolution in the Repression of Liberty, 1789 to 1848. Adam is, as you will deduce from this, about as much of a fan of Napoleon as Nigel Farage is of David Cameron. So, uh, Adam, give us the feet of clay. In fact, give us the whole corpse, really. <laughs> well, first of all, I must thank you for this opportunity to lose my virginity at my grand old age. Um, and then many thanks to Intelligence Squared um, and, and to Jeremy for chairing this. Um, this is uh, indeed an impressive book. Thank you for quoting from my book, um, although it's slightly out of context. Uh, th this... <laughs> My words weren't meant as an approval. Um, this book is absolutely marvellous. I picked it up. Andrew very kindly sent me a copy. I picked it up and I opened it, and I said to myself, "Oh, he's got nerve, putting the author photograph on the end papers, until I, until I suddenly realised 
<laughs> but it was it wasn't Napoleon. I then turned to the title page, and I read Andrew Roberts in big capitals, and I thought, oh, who's this book about? And underneath it said Napoleon the Great. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is a very good book. I recommend it. It's a rattling good read. Um, made it all the more enjoyable if, as you read about Napoleon strutting the European stage and making a frightful nuisance of himself, you superimpose on your mental image of him Andrew's face. <laughs> Seriously, um, Napoleon should have been called the Great. History gave him several unique opportunities to reinvigorate his country, to restore its prosperity and influence, to make it the dominant power on the continent, and to make most of Europe a better place. Instead of which he messed up. He succeeded in ruining France's position in Europe for several decades, if not the entire 19th century. He hugely built up the power of her greatest enemy, Great Britain. And he provoked a great increase, rise in the power of both Russia and Prussia, both of which inflicted, both of which resulted in uh, very unfavorable uh, consequences for Europe and indeed France. Andrew says he was a great man of action, so does Churchill apparently, and this is always what we hear of him, the, the, the doer, the achiever. Well, in 1793, he went off to Corsica to bring the revolution to his native island. He made such a holics of it that the entire family had to get on board a French ship and be evacuated while their family house was sacked by the angry populace. Um, at the moment, at the crucial moment of the coup d'état of Brumaire, which was to bring him to power, he completely mucked up. He barged into the assembly of the Anciens, um, trumpeting ludicrous phrases about the god of fortune and the god of war march behind me. Everybody laughed him out and he had to retreat, retreat out of the door under a hail of abuse, um, only rescued by a couple of grenadiers. He then marched into the other assembly where he was beaten up and injected and he sat around in a state of total dejection not knowing what to do next and it was only because his younger brother Lucien took the upper hand and sent in the troops that anything came of it. Uh, one could quote endless um, cock-ups of this kind um, in his life. Now, he's usually also thought of as the great military genius. Well, yeah, he did win a few battles. But when you take a close look at the great, the famous ones, you know, Marengo, everybody says, fantastic. Well, he jolly nearly lost that. And the, reason, the only reason he won it was because the Austrian general thought he'd already won it and went home to have lunch. <laughs> and at that moment, Napoleon's reinforcements arrived and a completely unplanned charge by um, General Kellerman totally flummoxed the Austrians who all started running. He was the most fantastic spin doctor. Um, you know, even, even Austerlitz, his greatest victory. Well, you know, it's partly the fact that Kutuzov, his opponent, refused to adopt his own plan and just sat there saying it's all going to be a mess anyway and nothing's going to work. Um, 
so the Russian forces weren't even being properly directed. And he originally was helped by the fact that he, he was up against very old generals commanding armies of an 18th century type, which just sort of plodded along, stood in line, shot, and then waited you know, either to advance or retreat. Whereas he adopted tactics, he encircled them, and so on. The point is that they all gradually learnt from him and from their mistakes. He never learnt from his mistakes. He carried on the same old tactics um, with less energy as he grew older. They learnt to improve, to bring in new weaponry. Uh, The British famously brought in the rifle. Uh, The Russians brought in extraordinary aiming devices um, to their artillery. He did nothing. He carried on with the old equipment um, of the 18th century and just threw more men into the breach whenever he needed it. He got sloppy, and that's why he began to lose. And he didn't think um, that tactics that could work in rich countries like northern Italy or southern Germany couldn't work in Spain where there was no fodder, no forage, no food, no water, anything, or let alone Russia. And he therefore presided over, well, the greatest military disaster, really, of of history, which is the Russian campaign. He went to war without any war aims. His war aim, if you put it down to this, was you could liken... He really wanted... He, he set off to the war with the greatest army anybody's ever collected in Europe in order to try and persuade the other guy to become his ally. You know, it's a bit like um, thinking you're going to get your girlfriend back by going burning down her house and beating her up. Um, he presided over the greatest military cock-ups in history, not least Waterloo, which he should have won, and, I mean, almost everything he did that day, which Andrew, Andrew himself points out, um, was as though he'd meant to lose it. His diplomacy, his politics, international politics, were no better. Every single alliance he made, he laid down terms which were simply not bearable to the Allies. And he just bullied and treated the Allies as vassals. As a result, gradually, he was left with not one single ally anywhere, which is not really a very clever way of operating. As for his great achievements in France, the Code Napoleon wasn't written by him. It was written by Cambacérès and a group of other people. Napoleon's only contributions, he'd suddenly come in and, and offer sort of what he thought was common sense when they were trying to decide whether which of a pair of twins should be regarded as the firstborn. He said, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Um, what went in first comes out second. So the second child out's got to be the firstborn. Yeah. <coughs> Good Corsican philosophy, no doubt. But, you know, that was his contribution to the Code Napoleon. Um, Yes, he restored law and order, only then to break it in the most fantastically callous way, to trample law. Yes, there was equality before the law, but not if he didn't like you. If he didn't like you, it was worse than the Ancien Régime. Let de cacher, you were sent off um, to Vincennes or, 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 or Guiana or, or, or simply exiled. 
He, uh, he was a terrible, awful prude and a prig. And he brought this into his awful little small town morality into public life. You know, some official would be seen somewhere with his mistress publicly. He'd say, this is not possible. You can't be seen like that. He repudiated when uh, Josephine became, when he became first consul, he, he made her give up all her friends who had a bit of a past, you know, nice girls that she'd been, well, she had quite a past. And um, so all her friends were gone off. Um, he was continually sort of um, bringing this, this, this um, culture in. And at the same time, he, in order to gain influence and friends and to reward people, he would give money and position. He was always bribing people. You know, somebody would come along and say, give him some money, give him a position, make him a préfet or something. And what he introduced into French public life was a tremendous sense of um, everything was based on property, on money, and service to the state, but all to do based on money and, um, and loyalty to him. And any minister who suggested um, a course of action he didn't agree with would be immediately made to feel his displeasure and very often lose his job for it. Not even for contradicting him, simply saying when asked as advice, what would you do? You know, and he'd say, I would, would do this, sire. And if he didn't like the idea, this man was out. Finally, the man... Well, he didn't really have friends. He only had courtiers. Yes, he cried when Lan was killed. He cried when Duroc was killed. But he, um, he didn't really treat any of them as friends. He treated them extremely badly. He would berate senior officers, even marshals, in front of juniors in the most disgusting way. And he was always, always persecuting um, people. He didn't like, for instance, he was a racist. He didn't like blacks. So General Dumas, a very, very brave general, was sidelined and wasn't allowed to have the Légion d'honneur because you couldn't give it to a black. Um, he hated women having any influence at all and treated them like dirt. He was... His, his uh, persecutions of people like Madame de Stael were legendary. First of all, she wasn't allowed to live in Paris because people went to her salon and they talked. And he didn't like them talking because they might talk about him unfavorably. So she was exiled, endlessly exiled. And if anybody went to see her, even when Madame Récamier, passing through Switzerland, went to dropped in on her, she was then penalized until she had to move out of Paris. Um, unbelievably unpleasant Poor old General Coulancourt, the Grand Ecri, was forced to go as ambassador to Russia, which he didn't want to do. He was forced to by an opponent who said, OK, if you go and spend two years there as my ambassador, I will allow you, because of course he wouldn't allow anybody to marry anybody. He had to give his assent. 
and he said, I will allow you to marry your mistress, the woman you love, Madame de Canizy. After three years, Colincourt came back and Napoleon exiled Madame de Canizy from Paris so that they couldn't see each other, only because Colincourt kept warning him about the fact that it was not a good idea to invade Russia. Napoleon the Great, ladies and gentlemen? Not to me. Napoleon the bungler, Napoleon the bully, and Napoleon the unbelievably petty. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Adam. I've got some bad news for you, though. The preliminary vote, the vote that people cast before they'd been exposed to your argument, was for the proposition that he should be called the great, 49%, against it, 24%, but 27% not knowing. So perhaps you'll have persuaded them, but we'll see. Congratulations, (laughs) Andrew. An uninformed audience. Um, well, un- unexposed to your uh, no, view, no, no, anyway. No, no, no. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And also your view, because in your 2011 book, Empire, what? you call Napoleon a despot. He was so, a despot. No, he was and not he a can, despot. He, no, no, sorry, this is the moderator, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> can you just remind us how he was elected? Well, actually, he, he had three great uh, referendum plebiscites that uh, were slightly uh, fraudulently manipulated. manipulated. <laughs> but they were manipulated. He actually won by... We have the actual uh, the proper voting f- uh, figures in the uh, National Archives. The great thing is that um, he won about 80% but claimed 95%. Now, that is obviously outrageous and disgraceful and despicable, but he still won 80%. Of those who dared to vote. Yeah. <laughs> does the word coup mean anything to you? Yes. Yeah, yes, it certainly does. And he came and he, yes, of course, he came to power in a in a military coup. And thank God he did, because look at all the wonderful things he did for France. Whereas if you try to change the French constitution in hang on please. In um, in uh, uh, 1799, it would take three years. It had to go through both houses of parliament and be passed three years, three times. So you actually had to have, and then have a plebiscite. So you actually took nine years That's to change the constitution. It's, 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 no, it is not. The, it's, it's absolutely not. What it is is an argument for having somebody who is able to cut through all that red tape and actually get things done. Adam, is there nothing you admire about this man? Oh, no, I, I, was, I was brought up rather admiring him, and I always thought, um, you know, there was something very sort of dashing about him. Uh, the more one... He was very short to dash, really, wasn't he? Yeah. No, well, no he when he was young, he was sort of quite sexy in a way, but, you know... He wasn't a short arse. No, he was not a short arse. He was five foot six. He was exactly my height, in fact. 
when I was making this BBC TV series, I, I actually, when nobody was looking in the, in the room in which he died, I lay on his deathbed. Um, and, uh, and my feet just touched the end of the, of the bed. He's exactly the same height. The, people, the reason people think that he's tiny is because of all those caricaturists um, who constantly made him minute against huge John Bull figures and George III figures. He was, he was the exact average age for a Frenchman of his time. No, I mean, the people were always remarking that he was of small stature. Only tall people. And he was very puny. <laughs> Okay, apart from his stature, is there anything you admire about him? Um, he did, he did, he could, he was capable of acts of generosity, he did do some very, um, you know, he, he, he did won, win some extraordinary battles, he did do some things, but you know, but hardly great, you know, no, he wasn't a military genius, military he genius. He was rubbish at sea, but he was... No, yeah, military genius doesn't take half a million men off into the middle of nowhere and get them all slaughtered and well, massacred or die of disease, and, and then and bring himself we, down. We, we well, you know, you may not m- mean to do something, but if a gen- you're a genius, you, um, you make sure that you know what you're doing before he you got, set off. Look, he got defeated. That's, that, it doesn't stop you. As I mentioned earlier, all these other people who, got, who were still called the great who got defeated. But he won 46 of his 60 battles. And that is an astonishing achievement in, for anyone. Uh, yes, of course, the ones that really mattered, the ones at the end, the Battle of Waterloo, uh, he lost and he, was, and he deserved to lose, as I, as I say in the book. He, uh, that was a, a series of, of blunders. The but really we, important ones, he didn't win, and that's the trouble. He, he well, no, and he by, the way, by the way, when you <laughs> criticise Marengo, um, my, that is completely outrageous. When you say, and then reinforcements happen to arrive, who asks for the reinforcements? You know, he did. He went from that moment that he realised the, atta- the Austrian attack was taking place at 9.30 in the morning, he sent out the demands to uh, Desai to return to the battle, and he, they did it at the key and decisive moment. So it's not fair, really, to, uh, to slag off 46 victories and make such a fuss of seven defeats. Can we look at something beyond military, though? Yes. You would accept, wouldn't you, that this man's legacy in terms of science, in terms of urban planning, in terms of the law, these, this is significant. In terms of um, science... Uh, I think it had very little to do with him. It was, a, it was the legacy of the revolution. He promoted it. No, yes. he promoted it. Whoever would have been ruling France would have promoted it. It was, you know, it was a movement that had started. Well, not the necessarily. Revolution I don't think Laplace would have gone anywhere. Um, the the, the uh, revolution had unleashed such talent and such energy that that was one thing. As for the law, all it created was the bossiest, most awful control freak system of government, which which we in in this in Europe are now sort of fighting with at every um, you know he created something that generates bureaucracy and regulation. Um, Fantastic! You know, He's now to blame for the European Union, which wasn't set well, up you, until a hundred years Union, after well, he died. You've just been saying that Europe has embraced years. his. I want to. Can we go back to science and uh, science and yeah. uh, and the, the the fact is that he. He was the one who set up the great scientific prizes. He was the one who, uh, for the first time in French history, gave scientists, made scientists into, into important people in society, gave them peerages. You know, the first scientist that we ever made appear in this country? Lord Kelvin in 1896. The first artist who ever got a peerage uh, was Lord Leighton in 1892. The first poet 
who he, he, he made these great men uh, into great men. And the first poet in this country was Tennyson in 1884. Why that is ridiculous. It's because it's a way of thanking people. They, oh, by the way, he brought in life peerages, which we didn't do in this country till 1958. That's good, yes, it's a it's a way of <laughs> well, what you prefer the hereditary version that we had in this country well, at the some time. Some of us are Democrats, you know. <laughs> right, let's have um, let's have some contributions from the floor. How he got to to stage one. Uh, where was he born? How did he get to be the general that he was? Or uh, could we have some background on that? Well, I think there's a probably. Have you got one up there? But should we have a, th- a, th- a third one while we're at it, and then we'll? Uh, my question is for, for for Adam in particular. Adam, to what extent was Napoleon Berthier's glove puppet? Okay, let's start off with you, Andrew. Uh, you better give us a big bit of backstory to start with, perhaps, on uh, his childhood. Oh, right, yes. Uh, well, born on the Mediterranean island of uh, Corsica, he came from that interesting penumbra between the upper middle class and the lower upper class. He was like a uh, sort of Highland clan chief family. But they didn't have any money. Um, they were officially noble, but, um, but they had to actually get that uh, confirmed. He went to school in mainland France because his father had confirmed him as noble and had a fantastic education at Brienne um, Military Academy and then at the um, École Militaire in Paris. And then after that, he he followed the career of an army officer whilst also at the same time getting involved in Corsican politics, which, as Adam quite rightly pointed out, he was very bad at. And uh, the the whole family got chased off the island in 1793. What Adam didn't mention also happened in 1793 a few months later was that he commanded the... uh, artillery at the siege of Toulon and in a brilliant um uh, immediate aperçu. As soon as he went up to the uh, to the top of the eaglet above the of the uh, heights of Toulon, he saw how if you captured a particular battery, you were able to force the British out of the uh, harbour, which he managed to do. Adam, you take your question now. Um, Berthier, it's it's difficult to tell. I mean, Napoleon, all the ideas came from Napoleon. Berthier did put order in things, and he he was the workhorse, I'd say, of the entire um, military machine. But I don't think, um, as far as I'm concerned, I've never had seen any evidence of Berthier taking or, or even suggesting major um, strategic. Uh, initiatives. So I don't think that he was um, Berthier's glove puppet. I'd say that certainly not. Uh, um, on, on this question of the origins, um, Napoleon was, of course, famously insecure about the whole business because the reason he was allowed to, 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 to go to, um, got the placement at a French military school um, was because his father became extremely close with the French governor of Corsica. Um, the Comte de Marbeuf, um, who uh, and basically stuffed um, Napoleon's mother into Marbeuf's bed. Um, and uh, absolutely no evidence for that. Um, uh, there's Adam. huge amounts of evidence. No, no there is not. And Napoleon no believable himself, evidence. And the proof of which, Andrew, as you no. should know, no. Napoleon himself several times said to people that he didn't know whether he was his father's son or 
Marbeufs. No, he, um, he, no, he did say no, that. No, he did not say that. He did say but that to, to some people. To he said it to Morge, no, he was, for instance. Not least, he was... And so um, he, he was quite insecure <laughs> about that. Um, and... It, the other thing was that he started off with this great romantic idea of Corsica as an oppressed nation, which he longed to sort of liberate um, uh, first as a sort of lieutenant of, of the Corsican patriots, Pasquale Parlis, and then to sort of take over. And then when that didn't work, then he decided that Corsica must part, become part of France. And he, he, while he was still at school, he kept saying, I'm Corsican, I'm Corsican, I hate France. And when he suddenly realized that power lay in France, and that was where the future was, he became French, and that's, that's really... All. He, he then identified himself with the French state, the French revolutionary state. It's not when he um, actually thought that that's where the power lay. It, it was when he'd done his reading and understood the importance of France yes, and the Enlightenment and his own belief in uh, Enlightenment concepts and reading of Rousseau that he came intellectually over to appreciate that he had, that, that Corsica was a, um, a, uh, a cause he believed in but was not as important as the wider picture. Um, right, there's... Um Let's have you, you gentlemen there with your hand up. Could, yes, go ahead. Could I please ask both speakers, what was uh, Napoleon's primary political objective? We've heard all sorts of things about all sorts of his achievements or otherwise, but what was his primary politi- uh, political objective? Okay, and we'll take that and we'll take the, the, the lady over um, there. Didn't uh, the abolition of primogeniture by the Code Napoleon result in a far lower birth rate in France which subsequently caused problems with their wars with Prussia and Germany. I think his primary objective was a... Well, obviously, um, uh, French hegemony in Western Europe. He was, never, he was never attempting to rule the world. He was never attempting to rule all of Europe either. But he did want to ensure that uh, he was not going to be in any kind of, um, of uh, military or strategic danger from Austria, Prussia or Russia. Um, I think that he also wanted to put the most key um, parts of the of the Enlightenment into as many countries as he was able to. And Adam was absolutely right that the uh, the, the, the brothers of his were pretty uniformly useless as uh, as kings. But the reason was not that he bullied them so uh, so much was that because it was con- there were constant wars. They were. Wars that were, as I mentioned, uh, started by the legitimist and ancien regime powers, not wars that he wanted. What do you think his primary objective was? Um, I don't think he knew that well himself. I think he meant well to begin with, and he meant he wanted order, and he, 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 wanted, he wanted to act. He wanted, I think, to... Um, to, to to rule and control, and I think there is an element of the sorcerer's apprentice about the whole enterprise. That you know, he he would um, embark on one thing, and then it would lead to another, and then he would. And this is, I think, his greatest fault is that he lost sight of what he was doing a lot of the time. And you know, by you know, eighteen ten eleven, um, he is annexing. You know, he says, oh, I'll have Oldenburg as well. And, yeah, let's get Hanover in here, you know, part of the French Empire. Yeah, and let's bring in Tuscany. And, you know, he didn't stop to think, what is my aim? And, like, going into Russia, he had no war aim. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't prepare for... You know, if you're going to go and try and do something about Russia, you say, right, you tell the Turks 
who are currently at war with Russia, that, you will, that they should carry on fighting and say you'll help them. You tell the Swedes who have just had Finland taken off them by Russia, you say, look, we'll help you, you know, you fight there and we'll help you take Finland back. No, you just sort of barged in happily without thinking of the consequences. And, you know, and, and that was the trouble. It sort of went on and on and it, it became a great sort of roller coaster. And I think, I don't think he ever had a real um, objective. Um, and, and, you know, the way that I'm, I'm sure that in 1799 it never entered his mind to become emperor or anything, but that suddenly became the obvious thing to do. And there was a sort of horrible logic to it, as there, as there often is. What about the abolition of primogeniture? Um, well, obviously, if the Code Napoleon um, had nothing to do with Napoleon, it can't be blamed on him. Um, but, uh, uh, but Adam is wrong about that. Uh, that. He, pres- he presided over uh, well over half of the meetings that uh, set up the Code Napoleon. And when I say presided, he had something to say about absolutely everything. And he also provided, most importantly, Adam's absolutely right when he says that Cambaceres was the, um, was the intellectual force behind it. But Cambaceres had been trying to get a code, a revision of the legal code into French law since um, the French Revolution broke out and nothing had happened for 15 years. What it needed, 10 years, sorry, what it needed, 15 by the time it got through, was a driving political force willing to cut the Gordian knot and that's what Napoleon was. Now, with the question of primogenitor, uh, which he himself, of course, had, his family had benefited from um, because that was the only way that they'd managed to keep their estates together in, uh, in, um, in Corsica. Um, yes, I think it's, a, uh, I think it's a, a, a very bad idea. I've always been against primogenitor. I'm the eldest um, brother. And uh, my younger brother, who's in the audience here, is, is, is shaking his head, but there we are. Um, the, uh, the fact is that primogenitor is a way, in Britain certainly, that you kept estates together and you um, sent the youngest and poorest people uh, off to the um, off to the off to the wars, but um, I think to blame um, to blame Napoleon for the um, uh, what has been blamed things that happened literally a century after his uh, death. Um, such as the, the rise of German nationalism at the time of the First World War, really is going too far. And I think the case is, uh, is the same for primogenitor. Right. I, I wasn't um, talking about the rise of German nationalism in the First World War, but in um, 1813. Um, well, why was that such a bad mind. thing? Um, it's, it's only when it gets nasty in 1914 that we have to be, or at least 1870, well, it, it, well, that there's a big problem. It was quite nasty because it was provoked in a very, very nasty way, way by Napoleon because he went around humiliating Germany in every conceivable way. The other thing we haven't talked about, I mean, mentioned, is, is his appalling, um, uh, through censorship of the most vicious kind, his uh, appalling effect on French letters. He basically um, shut up two generations of, 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 of French literature. We are wildly, um, wildly hypocritical about this. The Lord Chancellor had the right and ex- exercised the right to, um, to censor theatrical productions in this country until 1968. He did it against Arthur Miller's plays, Pinderello's plays. 
well, pretty much all the anti-government uh, newspapers. About and the 60 fact, newspapers. Yeah, and how much, how much genuine... It's wartime. How much genuine um, uh, freedom of the press was there in this country in the Second World War? When Winston Churchill said that um, the truth needs to be protected by a bodyguard of lies, he understood exactly what Napoleon yeah, but, was trying but, to do. Andrew, it wasn't, a question of the, it wasn't a question of political things. You know, Madame de Staal wrote a book about German literature... You know, it had to be confiscated and burnt. The manuscript was pursued by the police. I mean, the, way in which, the way in which you're t- treating him, like he's a... Uh, Madame de Stahl uh, was, was sent into internal exile. It is hardly a police state when you have one policeman in, for every 1,510 Frenchmen. In Britain today, we have one policeman for every 450 Britons. Does that make us a police state? No. No, I didn't think, um, internal exile is a characteristic of a police state, isn't it? It's jolly sight better than, than being put in prison. At least she was able to live in her vast and beautiful mansion on the uh, Lake Geneva, well, the ca- Lake Coppe. Were put in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fewer. No, no, no. No, that's not, that's not the case. The Ancien Regime and the French Revolution imprisoned more people than Napoleon. Right, let's have some more questions. Yes, I'm sorry, I should have took the microphone away from you. And one, two, three, the fourth row back, the lady in, with the black hair in black. And... and May I ask both historians, as historians, is it right that we should judge Napoleon or indeed anyone from the past by today's standards? I mean, how, do we, how should we set this debate? Because it strikes me that the things that have been listed against him, sort of courtiers, dis- banishing people who are out of favour, military casualties, all the rest, were very much of the time and how people behaved at that time. And yet his virtues and the good things he did stand the test of time and were really forward-thinking and also, Adam Zamoyski, who do you admire from the past? Following on from that question, is there anyone who, who's perfect enough? Right. Yes, Hello. sir. From Adam's description, uh, you wouldn't expect um, Napoleon's return, on Napoleon's return from Elba, that he would gather uh, sufficient men uh, to command a force to restore his power, to do whatever the... the the rest of the um, events that happened until his demise. You also wouldn't expect um, the the journey of his body to be lined with people of France from the coast back into Paris, Uh, apparently a a continual line of uh, people on both sides of the river as his barge with his body um, came back to Paris, and also that Wellington insisted that he wasn't Executed when the I understand the other uh, allies uh, were very much in favour of that. Okay, you might as well deal with that first, Andrew. Yes, um, the um, the return from Elba. There are several things. Uh, first of all, he wasn't greeted in southern France. He had to avoid the cities until he reached Grenoble because he was actually um, uh, he met with hostility. Um, Thereafter, it was a very mixed picture because, and people were jumping both ways. It was a very tricky moment. And the reason it was a tricky moment was because, you must remember one thing, is that the Bourbons came in and made themselves unbelievably unpopular, and particularly with the army. What's more, in the interim, while he'd been in Elba, all the prisoners had returned from Russia, all the ones who'd spent the last five, six sometimes eight years in British hulks returned 
And they were all still... They, they, they couldn't see the... They didn't see the sort of decline of France in 1812-13. And they didn't feel the same way as most of the population of France, which was just sick of the rising taxes, um, the endless conscription, um, and the increasingly bossy government. Um, and so there was, a, there was a huge new army ready to, for him to, 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 to take up. As for the return of his ashes in 1840, it was a propaganda thing. By then, you know, two generations of romantic poets and writers had created the Napoleonic myth, which was something that is magnificent and, and, and completely irrelevant um, to, to the truth. Um, it has no bearing with it. And there was a desire for something great because everybody was bored under Louis-Philippe. Um, and so that explains nothing. And as for um, Wellington's um, uh, generosity in this case, that's, um, uh, you know, hats off to him for it. So, OK, so who, who do you admire then, Adam? Yeah, I, I think that I don't... I simply don't believe in wonderful, great people. I think, you know, some people do better or worse things. And Napoleon did do some quite decent things, but they're far outweighed in the historical context by, um, I think, his, his, what he did. Long term, the fact was that he, he really <clears throat> eclipsed France. You know, whether it was his fault, whether it was unfair, who attacked him, it didn't matter. You know, he came to power in 1799. He put France back, um, brought back her prestige. He then bungled everything to such an extent that France was, really became not quite a second-rate power, but was not the main player in Europe, and she should have been. And Europe would, be a, would have been a far better place had she been. And um, he strengthened the tyrannies of the East, Prussia, Russia, and Austria, um, which um, created, um, as if you read my book, you'll see, um, <laughs> um, a, a sort of prison house of half of Europe. The very intelligent question from, uh, from the gentleman over there um, about uh, Elba, it was quite, um, it's quite wrong to say that nobody uh, welcomed him into, before Grenoble. Um, actually, at La Frie, he had a regiment um, fling themselves on him, and in um, one of the other um, villages, they, sorry, towns, I think it was Cisteron, they actually, the common people of France, just of, of the town, anyway, just pulled down the gates and smashed them up and gave him bits of the gates to show that they didn't want him to be kept out of Cistron. So, you know, it's not fair. He's absolutely right when he says that the Bourbons ruined everything and screwed everything up in ten months. But nonetheless, that wasn't the only reason that people welcomed him back in 1815. What about this point that was made very early on, this very interesting point about the standards by which you judge whether someone's entitled to be considered great or not? Are they the standards of today or the standards of the time? You're argue, you've argued a relativism right the way through your presentation. Um, no, I believe in both. I believe he was great both by the standards of the day and by the standards of today. But I don't believe that, um, that really uh, history makes that much sense if you constantly just see it through the prism of the present day. And the fact is that we have seen um, Napoleon wrongly through the prism of the Second World War again and again. He's presented, especially by British historians, as a kind of proto-Hitler who... Um, was uh, was a you know totalitarian monster. He wasn't. You have to see him through the um, actual prism of the day. 
Right, would you chaps like now to make a final presentation for three or four minutes about... Uh, as to why people should have already voted the way you want them to vote. So, Adam, I think you should go first, really, shouldn't you? Why he should not be considered great. Well, I suppose I have to. Um, I have to... Um, since you've all now voted, um, I have a little secret, um, which, which is that I've been commissioned to write a book about Napoleon as well. <laughs> And I'm pretty confident that um, it will be different in tone to the tone I've taken this evening. Um, <laughs> the fact is... The chap's um, got to eat. <laughs> <laughs> the fact is that Napoleon was... And I think this is where... Andrew's so totally wrong, is Napoleon was a very, very remarkable individual. And the point about him was that he didn't come from nowhere. He came out of a great ferment created by the French Revolution, which itself was the fruit of the Enlightenment. And when the revolution, as it were, hit the buffers by 1799... Most intelligent people in France just realized this cannot go on. And everybody wanted some kind of a different, a third way. They couldn't restore the, the, the monarchy because, well, you only had to look at Louis XVIII. Um, and anyway, you couldn't go back. It wouldn't have worked. You couldn't, the republic just wasn't going to go on. The, I think the greatest problem with Napoleon was that he did lead that enterprise and he did do quite a lot to begin with that was very good and he made things happen which were going to happen anyway but couldn't happen because there wasn't a strong executive but then he actually betrayed the enterprise and then it was me, me, me because anybody, this is the awful thing of absolute power, anybody who simply so much as declared a reservation or said, well, excuse me, sir, don't you think we could do something this way or couldn't we look at it that way, was immediately given the chill and they were out. And to me, it was a great enterprise, a joint enterprise, that went terribly, terribly wrong. And I think it's very sad that it did. And I'm afraid the blame lies with him. Right, Andrew will now tell us why we should have voted for the proposition that Napoleon should be called the Great. Ladies and gentlemen, everyone who put in one of these black little cards is following in the tradition of Goethe, Hegel, Berlioz, Byron, Carlyle the great intellectuals, who appreciated that he was a bona fide intellectual, a connoisseur, a critic, a theorist of drama and music, a man who championed science, who socialised with astronomers, and who impressed these great men, as well as all of those 
of you who, uh, who were handed in this card. <laughs> he was in the Enlightenment, ladies and gentlemen, on horseback. He abolished, wherever he or his armies went, they abolished uh, feudalism, they rationalised countries, they abolished the Spanish Inquisition um, and uh, all, the, all the appalling backward things that had held Europe back for so long under the legitimists and the ancien regimes of whom the spokesman, it seems tonight, is Count Adam Zamoyski. Um, it's, very, it's, it's wonderful news, by the way, that he's writing a biography of Napoleon, and I am very much looking forward to reviewing it. Um, but when one sees the, uh, the, the, the effects of uh, this great man, and when they went into these towns, one of the first things they do, like in the Papal States, classic example, the Papal States... They, where Jews still had to wear the yellow star and where they were forced into ghettos, he not only um, opened up the ghettos, but he gave civil and religious um, rights and liberties to uh, the Jews and to everyone else. This is a liberating concept, the idea of the enlightenment on horseback. And for all of you who um, voted um, yes, you can feel yourself part of one of the great liberating enlightenment traditions. (laughs) Those of you who didn't, of course, uh, are, are still uh, stuck in the mire of reaction, legitimacy, and the ancien regime. Thank you very much indeed. Well, um, Andrew, um, Adam, thank you both very much indeed. Well. Uh, before people had heard the arguments, there were 49% in favour of the proposition and 24 against and 27 didn't know. After the debate, there are now 56% in favour of the proposition, 43 against and 1% who don't know. So at least we've helped people make up their minds. <laughs> Even if it's come at the cost, apparently... I don't understand how this works. Apparently, it's there's minus, a minus 6% yeah. swing vote against you against in favour of Adam. Adam. Congratulations. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well done, boy. It's really good fun. <laughs> Book selling is the next bit. There are a worrying number of Enlightenment people here, though. <laughs> yes. Anyway, thank you both very much. Thank you very much to Intelligence Squared. Thank you all very much uh, for coming. Uh, and uh, until the next time. And the books are on sale. Oh, there are books on sale outside, <laughs> yes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.